The summer I was 11, we took a family trip to Galveston. It was a long time ago, but I remember a few things, mainly being furious at my germaphobe mother for refusing to let me swim in the murky water at the beach. I did, however, get some taffy at an old soda fountain downtown and recall enjoying the train museum. I also remember the Bishop's Palace, Ashton Villa, and impressive mansions that lined Broadway. Marveling at those structures, even then I thought to myself, wow, this place must have been something else. I've since learned it was once breathlessly referred to as the Wall Street of the South, and even rivaled San Francisco in importance. But reflecting on that distant weekend, cute is more or less the impression that stayed with me. So, you can imagine my surprise when I discovered that in the more recent past, Galveston enjoyed a long, prosperous renaissance as a luxurious destination of illegal gambling where the likes of Howard Hughes, Bob Hope, and the Marx Brothers came to play. While preservation societies and hotel brochures are quick to remind visitors of the Gilded Age, this other era seemed to have been neatly scrubbed from the record. So, with my curiosity piqued, at long last I decided to make a return trip to Galveston to see what, if anything, could be found. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Before we get started, I'm going to let my friend Brandon tell you about his excellent show, Southern Gothic, which is a creepy fun listen I recommend consuming after dark. Brandon? Prepare to enter an immersive world of tragedies, hauntings, legends, and folklore. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast documenting the rich history of the American South stretching from the swamps of Louisiana to the shores of the Carolinas, deep into the mountains of Appalachia, and across the battlefields and earliest settlements of Virginia, guiding you through some of its darkest tales and eerie locations. Join us now on Southern Gothic, the podcast. Thanks, Brandon. Now... Let's get on with the show. Galveston? Galveston is a place where you don't, you come, but you don't want to leave. You know, that's, I have trouble going over the causeway. It's just a place that we're on a different beat. Pay a visit to Galveston, and chances are at some point, you'll hear someone refer to themselves as a BOI. Those letters stand for Born on Island, and the natives here wear that acronym like a badge of honor. This is a title that Ronnie Maceo can certainly claim, though he'll tell you that before settling here, his people migrated from a very different island in the Mediterranean. Well, you know, they came from Palermo, and they came from a fishing town, okay? So we had the same thing going on here in Galveston, and there was opportunity. As I remember, I was a little kid on the wharf over there, they were all of the shrimpers, they were all Sicilians. And if you wanted something, you better learn how to say it in Sicilian, you know? And those were the things that I can remember as, wow, you know? No, nobody spoke English. 
Now in his 70s, Ronnie sports glasses, a mischievous grin, and mostly bald heads surrounded by a ring of wavy gray hair. We're sitting in a booth at Maceo Spice and Import, the company his father founded back in 1944. Housed in a small, whitewashed, cinder-blocked warehouse about a mile from the seawall and several blocks removed from the touristy Strand District, this shop wouldn't feel out of place on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx or Boston's North End. The shelves are lined with pastas, sauces, olive oils, and, of course, a seemingly endless array of bottled seasonings. They have a terrific deli counter as well, selling brisala, mortadella, mozzarella, daily lunch specials, and the best muffaletta you're likely to find outside the French Quarter. But more than the food, which is, of course, terrific, I'm here today because this homey grocery is one of the few surviving links to the once formidable Maceo Empire. All I know is that when I was growing up, Maceo was in full, and it was almost like we couldn't do anything wrong. You know, they ran everything. They ran all the, all the gambling, all the casinos, all everything that went on in this town, they were part of. Driving through this town of palm tree-lined boulevards, you'll notice certain names have ways of cropping up. Hospitals, parks, buildings, and street signs all bear titles like Seeley, Kempner, and Moody. These families were titans of industry who amassed spectacular wealth and ruled the island like royalty in the days of ragtime. But about when Houston started to overtake Galveston as a port and taste shifted to jazz, a little something called the 18th Amendment swooped in to completely alter the city's power structure and character. Sure, gambling and prostitution had always been big here, but under Prohibition, vice became Galveston's most profitable business. This kicked off a nearly 40-year party that insulated it from the breadlines of the Depression and lured A-list stars and high rollers long before places like the Tropicana towered over the Nevada desert. It's a period local historian Kimber Fountain confesses she never knew of until, by chance, she offered an old man at a bus stop a ride on a sweltering August afternoon. So I offered him a ride. You know, I wasn't going to make this old man sit in the heat for another hour to wait for a bus. And so he was going to Walmart um, all the way across town. And so we went straight to the seawall and I took the seawall. And as we were driving down, he started telling me about when he was stationed here in the 1940s. And he just, he got this kind of, you know, overwhelming sense of, of pride that came into his voice when he was talking about the gambling halls and, and the luxury and the ladies in the fancy dresses and the guys in the tailored suits and, and the world famous, you know, celebrities that were performing at the clubs. And then of course threw in about the brothels and, and all that stuff. And I was just, amazed by what he was telling me and when he finished his story it was kind of like just the mist just lifted from his eyes and and he kind of looked outside and you could tell that that the Galveston that he was seeing today wasn't the Galveston that he remembered it was a very different world for him you know to be and I'll never forget you know his clincher line was if you had told me 40 years ago the Galveston would be just some family-friendly beach town you know I never would have believed you the forgotten, independent city that old man nostalgically described came to be known as the Free State of Galveston. And the duo that pulled the strings back then were Ronnie's uncles, Sam and Rose Maceo, whose rises began in, of all places, 
a barber shop. But the two of them were working as barbers at a shop actually that's just two blocks down 25th Street from where we're sitting now. Um, but uh, they were making 25 cents a haircut. Um, but um, they were just natural visionaries. They were natural entrepreneurs. Um, but the one thing that they were lacking was capital. And so it happens that two of their regular customers at their barber shop were Dutch Voigt and Ollie Quinn, who were the leaders of the Beach Gang. Now, just to give you a little bit of backstory on that, prior to the Maceo's entrance into Illicit Enterprise, Galveston had two gangs here on the island. There was the Beach Gang that operated south of Broadway to the seawall, and then there was the Downtown Gang that operated north of Broadway to downtown. And prior to Prohibition, these guys were just petty criminals and thieves, and that was it but prohibition kind of gave them their big in, right? And so it ended up that uh, the beach gang had uh, had a shipment of illegal booze that had come in from uh, some, one of the places, Honduras or the Bahamas. The state authorities had found out about it. They had fingered it. And so they decided that they needed to stash that whole cache of liquor until the Fed stopped looking for it, basically, or until the state law enforcement stopped looking for it. And it just so happened that Sam and Rose lived in one of our pretty typical pier and beam construction houses here on the island, perfect to hide booze. And so after much deliberation, uh, Sam and Rose, mainly Rose was really the business guy, um, decided that they would take the offer because the offer was that they would get $1 for every case of liquor that they stashed and there were 1,500 cases. So those guys were probably making $5 a day. They took the deal. Um, the beach gang showed up in the middle of the night, stashed all the liquor under the house, and then it took three days um, for uh, Dutch and Ollie to show back up to collect their, um, their stash, and those were three very sleepless nights for Sam and Rose. Um, three days later, uh, Dutch showed up and uh, set, you know, to collect their stash and to pay Sam and Rose their rental fee, but uh, Sam, I mean, sorry, Rose, being the enterprising individual that he was, said, you know what, keep the money, you just take our profit and you flip it into your next shipment. Um, the difference came in that the beach and the downtown gangs were content with their criminal antics, but Sam and Rose were on an entirely different trajectory. And um, within a year of investing into bootlegging and rum running, uh, Sam and Rose opened up their very first restaurants. And uh, then that just, again, grew and snowballed into, you know, an empire 40 years later. <laughs> so. Yet, while this empire the brothers amassed may have been built on bootleg liquor, gambling, and other endeavors that skirted the law, Galveston didn't necessarily descend into a seedy den of crime and debauchery. Thanks to the money they generated and some smart civic glad-handing, the Maceos brokered a truce with the city's power brokers and elite, avoided anything resembling a St. Valentine's Day massacre, and with the quiet, shrewd Rose cooking the books and suave Sam running the show, Texas got a taste of truly cosmopolitan style. The Maceos ushered in an era of prosperity and glamour and luxury that has never been replicated here ever, you know? And and so what they did truly deserves celebrating. It's, you know, it's, it's not something that we should hide behind. Maceo run spots like the Studio Lounge and Turf Athletic Club became the stuff of legend. But Kimber will tell you their Hollywood Dinner Club, which they opened with Dutch and Ollie in 1926, was where they revolutionized the idea of how a night at the slots could be spent. 
gambling clubs were off little dank, dark alleyways. They were hidden rooms. They were, you know, poor lighting. There was no entertainment. There was no food. It was just about the gambling. And it was really just a money mill for the people who ran them. You know, the games were a lot of times fixed, you know, and the odds were low and, and things of that nature. But under Sam's tutelage, if you will, uh, the Hollywood Dinner Club became a much bigger deal than it ever would have been without them. And basically, Sam created this template that included high-class entertainment, gourmet food, and high-end gambling all under one roof. Now, today, that's really normal, and you're like, Kimber, that's nothing special. We just call it Las Vegas, right? But it's a very little-known fact that the Maceos actually invented that template that later on in the 1940s would be picked up by the American Mafia and used to turn Vegas into what it is today. So all of the, by the time that Bugsy Siegel broke ground on the Flamingo in 1947, uh, the Maceos had been in the luxury gambling business for over 20 years at that point, you know, and that's a very, very little known fact. And so to me, that's the most special, that's the most special aspect of the Hollywood Dinner Club was that um, it didn't just launch an empire, it launched an idea. And an idea that today has been translated into a city that's really an icon of our country. You know, there's nothing else like Las Vegas in our country. And so uh, for all of that to have started in Galveston is a pretty special uh, little piece of uh, Galveston history trivia that I don't think a lot of people know. <laughs> Built of Spanish architecture with a swank interior of crystal chandeliers, the casino boasted 30 craps tables, blackjack, roulette, slot machines, and modern air conditioning kept at a constant 69 degrees. Situated on a circular drive near the then edge of town, Sam placed a pair of searchlights out front, booked Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians to play the club's opening, drew 20,000 customers in their first three weeks, and even employed a then-unknown Fred Astaire to work for a stint as their resident dance instructor. But while the locals and ruling families tolerated, and I can only assume enjoyed this spectacle, axe-wielding rangers broke it all up, making the Hollywood's run frustratingly short-lived. At this, a furious Sam resolved to one day build, as he'd call it, a raid-proof club. The Maceos would make this dream a reality some years later when they'd open the most famous night spot the Gulf has ever seen. I'm talking about the Balinese Room. I was raised very strict Baptist, and the uh, Galveston had places that were very sinful and bad. And uh, my mother would talk about that and uh, with her friends and we knew there were some pretty bad places in Galveston where Sin City. <laughs> Mary Haas was raised a good church girl in Port Arthur, Texas. And when she got married at 21, her husband arranged their honeymoon to Houston. What she didn't know at the time was that he hid a secret taste for gambling and had planned a surprise detour to Galveston to enjoy the beach, but also hit the tables at, where else? The Balinese Room. I never dreamed of even at 21 years old, I hadn't thought about going to the Balinese room, but that was his, his surprise for me. <laughs> We're talking over the phone, but when I ask Mary what her mother would have thought of all this, I can just tell a wide grin has broken out across her face. Oh my goodness. My mother would have, I don't know. 
not kill me, but she would want to, uh, didn't dare talk about that or say anything about that. No, sir. That was, that was a bad thing. I was really being a wild, bad person. I was just terrible to do something like that. But in speaking with Mary, it's clear she wasn't hostage, as she doesn't hesitate to tell me the night they spent at the Balinese was the highlight of their trip. Oh, it was so exciting. Oh, man. Like with all these grown-up people and away from Port Arthur and drinking and dancing and, yeah, maybe some, maybe some uh, ladies that were sort of obvious. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, man, this is the greatest. It was just that it was such a different atmosphere, uh, like something I'd never been in. I guess it's why it was exciting. But yes, oh, goodness, people were so uh, fine-looking. Of course, men in their suits and ladies in beautiful clothes. You, of course, knew it was a higher-class place. It wasn't wasn't low-class for sure. I was just so excited to be of that age and that, in that place and that time. It was just over my head. The Balinese room sat on a pier over the Gulf that was the site of an Asian-themed club the Maceos owned called the Sui Rin. They shut the place down for a major renovation in advance of a grand New Year's unveiling. But global events threw a major wrench into these plans. On December 7th of 1941, um, the Pearl Harbor happened, and all of a sudden, anything Japanese or Chinese or anything Asian went from being novel and exotic to basically traitorous and treasonous. And so they had to make this huge overhaul of all of their motif. And uh, lucky, luckily, Sam had a brilliant designer whose name was Virgil Quadri. And uh, he came in. He's not only the one who redesigned um, the, uh, the restaurant into a Polynesian theme, um, but he's also the one who came up with the name The Balinese Room. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. The decor and concept were overhauled in record time. And when the Balinese opened its doors just two weeks late on January 17, 1942, the result was stunning. Ornate, hand-painted murals of girls in grass skirts and South Pacific scenes decorated the walls alongside a giant aquarium. Four 10-foot palm trees built of copper and neon surrounded the dance floor near the stage where Peggy Lee, Jack Benny, Alice Faye, George Burns, and Gracie Allen performed. But more than this, for the Maceo's purposes, it was functional. Very specific uh, measures were taken when it was decided to remodel the seawall, I mean, the seawall property yet again, and they constructed a 600-foot pier um, over the Gulf of Mexico into the Gulf, into the water, um, and it was in the shape of a T. And the base of the T was the dining room, and then the head of the T um, was uh, where the gambling hall was the gambling hall. And um, so, at the very front, at the seawall entrance, there was a foyer there, and there would be either a maitre d or a hostess uh, manning that place because you had to be a member to get into the Balinese room. And so, if law enforcement would show up, they would step on a pad. And that pad in the foyer was hardwired to an alarm system uh, in the gambling room. And so the alarm would go off in the gambling room and they had 
local uh, contractors designed tables for them that would flip over. They designed tables that would fold up into the wall like Murphy beds. Um, they also um, had these uh, specially made overlays that would basically transform a, um, you know, a craps table into a billiards table, you know. And so the rangers then, after going through the foyer, would, uh, would hightail it down that 600-foot pier, which was sarcastically nicknamed Ranger Run. So basically by the time the rangers reached the back gambling hall, it wasn't a gambling hall at all, it was a gaming hall, and people were, uh, you know, playing... Uh, uh, what's the, uh, you know, bridge, and they were playing, uh, you know, pool and billiards and sipping on soda. But Blackjack and Baccarat in the back room was only part of the experience. And when I ask Kimber what a guest could expect of a night at the Balinese room, she grows rapturous. Wow. It would, I often close my eyes and try to imagine that very question. A night at the Balinese room would have been hands down the most luxurious, opulent experience that you had ever borne witness to. It would have been outrageous. It would have been an absolute spectacle. You would, you know, you would enter in, you would show uh, the Mater D your membership card or give them your name and you're on the list. And this, uh, the 600 foot pier was not just a rickety wooden pier. The entire thing was carpeted. The walls were wallpapered. There were sconces. So you walk 600 feet down this absolutely beautifully, you know, decorated walk. And, and the whole time you're hovering over the Gulf of Mexico, which just much have, must have added this whole other element of magic and, and you know, an ambiance to the situation. And then, that, uh, and then that walkway opens up into um, a pristine environment where, you know, the waiters were immaculate, where the tables were laid out with military-like precision, where you pulled out a cigarette and immediately you had someone there to light it for you. It's just basically what I try to tell people is to put into your head any kind of vision or vignette that comes to mind whenever you think of 1930s Hollywood glamour, you know, and that's what the Balinese room was. That's what, you know, that's what Galveston was back then. Ronnie's cousin, Peggy, whose father, Joe, worked as the room's bookkeeper, was only a girl in the 50s. But as a member of the family, once a month, they got to enjoy dinner and a show at the Balinese. And the sensory details she remembers seemed to confirm Kimber's vision. Since, Galveston, since the Balinese room was over a long, long pier, you walked out over the water for a long way so you could hear the waves splashing below on the pylons. And when you, when you first entered the rooms, they were, had beautiful mats and bamboo uh, on the walls and tropical fish and birds. And um, it was really just, just like entering Shangri-La. It was, it was, it was a, a lovely place and you walked down a long hall and then into the main, the main dining area. And, fantastic lighting. There was, there was lighting below each of the murals and on the wall, but there was also lighting in, in the netting that went around the, uh, the stage. And the palm trees also had light. And, and, the, and at some time in the evening, they would always turn on the black lights, um, which made everyone's white shirts and socks glow. And uh, that was, that was a, a, a special part I remember too with, with dancing with my father. There was just a, a sort of special smell that the Balinese room had after you walked down the long ramp and 
in the unair conditioned air, which was, was very salty, and then you entered the air conditioning. I guess it was just a combination of the, the fiber mats and the bamboo and the air conditioning and the sort of salty air soaking everything, but there was just this particular odor that, that, that smelled like the Balinese room when, when you walked in. Peggy's memories of the entertainment are vague, but being some years older, Ronnie remembers a few of the headliners. As a kid, yeah, I remember having to wear a wool tuxedo, and I had to wear pajamas underneath it because they itched me, you know? But, uh, oh yeah, um, we would get to go, all the Maceo kids, not just me, all, all the Maceo kids all got to celebrate the Balinese run. And uh, there was an old singer, her name was Sophie Tucker. Sophie Tucker was, was, was a show there. And they would always take and put a deuce, a little table for two, by the side of the stage. And I would get to sit there to watch her. You know, I always thought that was, that was something else. But plenty of big names came to Galveston just to have a good time. Sinatra used to come to Galveston <clears throat> never to sing. He never sang a note in this town. Everybody seems to think he did, but he was a real close friend of Sam Maceo's, okay? Um, and Sam would bring him to town more to hide him out, get him out of the limelight, than to, he, Sam said it would be an insult to ask him to go sing, okay? Just, we're not gonna do that, you're here to, relax. He would, he would go to my grandmother's house, my grandfather Frank's house, and they'd eat spaghetti and, you know, do the things. We were little kids. I didn't even know who the hell he was, you know? Just going to take a quick break to say that if you've been enjoying Vanishing Postcards, I'm pretty confident you'll love the charm of Southern sisters Lainey and Laura Beth of the Steel Magnolias podcast. Each week, these Nashville natives educate, entertain, and enlighten listeners about the delights, traditions, and quirky aspects of all things Southern. I've heard them talk about travel, hospitality, food, and particularly enjoyed a recent segment where they explored the history of Delta tamales. Like sharing a glass of sweet tea with an old friend, you'll feel like you're sitting right with them as they dive into a new facet of Southern culture each episode. Take it from me, these gals are warm and delightful and recommend you check out Steel Magnolias on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get back to the show. Back at Maceo Spice, Ronnie points to an old framed black and white photo hanging on the wall. This is the Yacht Balinese, and I'll show you something. This little, the little guy kneeling down, that's Mel Torme, 21 years old. He had never sang in Galveston before, and he was here auditioning for the studio lounge. And he was, Sam Maceo was up there, and my dad and a whole bunch of them were listening to him audition. And Sam asked Mel, he said, Mel Torme told me this story, okay? And uh, he said, Sam asked him, are those the shoes you're gonna wear? He says, yeah, that's all I got, you know? And so he 
Sam turned around to my father and told my father, take him to Tom McCann's and get him a new pair of shoes. And he walked in and he bought him a pair of Stacy Adams. I mean, beautiful shoe. And Mel told me, he says, man, it was the first pair of Stacy Adams shoes he had ever owned. He said, I never forgot that, you know? I hate to say it, but I don't think you'll ever see Galveston in that position ever again, you know? But the world has changed. The fun in Galveston could only last so long. Sam Maceo died in 1951 and rose shortly after in 1954. The family kept the club running, but changing times made it harder to stay above the fray until the Balinese was finally raided in 1957, bringing the loose attitudes of the Free State era to a swift end. It's estimated that 10,000 people left Galveston um, at that time, after the Free State closed. Sheriff Biagni um, is a, was quite a character back in the Free State days. Um, local, um, local law enforcement, I'm sorry, state officials decided to conduct their own hearing and investigation. And one of the people they called to the stand was Sheriff Biagni. And uh, he was asked why he never raided the Balinese room. And he said, well, I tried once, but I wasn't a member, so they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> at this most of the Maceos packed up and moved to Vegas. The Balinese actually stayed open under different management, but the magic was missing. In the early 2000s, then-owner Scott Arnold did a beautiful job of restoring much of the interior to its original appearance. But in 2008, the Balinese room ended for good. Not at the hands of the law, but Mother Nature, when Hurricane Ike offered its contents as a gift to the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, that was, that was a real blow. Um, and you know, I guess because it had been through so many um, really terrible storms and had always managed to survive. And the Balinese room was, was like the place that took the big hit and just ended up as a pile of rubble on, on the boulevard. Um, yeah, that was, that was a real blow. Today, all that's left of the Balinese room is a solitary, descriptionless post on the seawall indicating this property has been placed on the National Register of Historic Places. But Kimber says maybe we shouldn't get too nostalgic. When I was researching the Balinese, you know, I found some old pictures of it after it had been remodeled and before it um, before it was destroyed by Hurricane Ike. And I was looking and I was like, oh, this is cool. And all of a sudden, I realized that the people were sitting on metal chairs and there were vinyl tablecloths on the tables. And the guy on stage was wearing ripped blue jeans and had, you know, a mullet. And I'm just like, you know, ah, you know, it just didn't fit. I realized we wanted it open, and I, and I realized because it's such an iconic piece of our history, but if we can't do justice to that history, aren't we really undermining it? You know what I mean? I, and I really think we are. Because then, you know, in 30 years, then how are people gonna remember the Balinese room? They're just gonna remember it as some place where they got chicken strips and listen to, you know, a local honky-tonk band, you know? I mean, and we don't want that to be the legacy that the Balinese has. You know, at least I don't. I just think that Galveston really has the potential to become a premier, again, a premier resort destination. People will rise to the level of your expectation. 
Now Galveston is a place where families come for the beach and to enjoy an escape that's a short drive from home. Places with dress codes and remnants of the Free State era are hard to find. But all is not lost. The gingerbread buildings that dot this town's avenues remain constant, as does the palatial Hotel Galvez where Sam Maceo kept his office. Kimber gives walking tours of what had been the booming red light district, and best of all, there's still Maceo Spice. This place is as homey as the Balinese was upscale. But the walls are decorated with paintings, menu covers, photos, and artifacts from the family's old days. And while humble, when you grab lunch here, it's clear the Maceo tradition of hospitality is doing just fine. You know, we try to treat everybody, you know, as if they're, they're the best customer we got. That's, that's just the secret. You know, treat them right, they're going to come back. You know, and we're good to people. You know, this is probably as close as you're going to get to the old days. This is the only Maceo. You know, this is the only one left right here. You grow up a Maceo, and it's just like, it, it's hard for me to go anywhere and people not know my name, you know? So it was a good name, and uh, just like the people that come here, they come here, they don't know what it is, but they know Maceo's running it, and we run a good show. Thanks to Ronnie and Peggy Maceo for taking the time to speak with me. If you're planning a trip to Galveston, a stop by Maceo Spice is a must. To plan a visit or to stock up your seasoning cabinet, check out maceospice.com. Also, thanks to Kimber Fountain, whose book The Maceos and the Free State of Galveston was a crucial source in developing this episode. To order a copy, schedule a walk-in tour, and learn more about her other offerings, visit kimberfountain.com. I also must recommend Gary Cartwright's definitive book, Galveston, A History of the Island, which provided the inspiration for this piece. The piano recordings in this episode were generously provided by the incomparable Peter Minton, who is a true living treasure. You can find his music on iTunes, and am including in the show notes a link to petermenton.com for more information. I also thank you for listening, and assuming you've enjoyed what you've heard and haven't already, please subscribe. It helps us grow and guarantees you will never miss an episode. As always, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more info, please find us on Instagram or visit vanishingpostcards.com where we'd love to hear from you if you have any stories you care to repeat or know of any places we should consider visiting. Our theme music was written and performed by Max Krauss and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern. And hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. Postcards.